In the middle of the night, police beat on Samuel Lobogo's door. They promptly handcuffed both he and his oldest son and took them to prison. Lobogo was the um, pastor of the largest parish in the area of that area of Uganda, and so he knew most of the men that were taking him to prison. His wife and his young children were thrown out onto the street as everything that he owned was taken from his house and thrown out into the yard, and he was locked, they were locked out. And so as Pastor Samuel sat in prison with his oldest son, his thoughts couldn't help but to go to his wife and his young children that are out on the street with no place to go. And what was his offense? What was the great offense of this pastor in Uganda? It was that Samuel had come to understand that it was in Christ and in Christ alone that man could be saved. And having cried out to him in faith and having experienced his transformative grace, Samuel refused to disobey God's command of baptism. And so Samuel, desiring to identify publicly his union with Christ, is baptized and he is persecuted. He and his family persecuted because of that decision. And Samuel is not alone. Right now, all across the globe, in places like North Korea and Iran, Uganda, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are risking literally everything, even their lives, that they might be baptized, that they might mark themselves publicly as being a follower of Christ, that they might profess and proclaim their liberty now found in Christ. Over the last couple of years, over the last two years since I've been your pastor, one of the conversations that I've had most, all of them in, in good context, but one of the conversations that I've had most from, with many of you is the intensity and the severity and the seriousness with which I and our pastoral team handle the ordinances of the church. And when I'm talking about the ordinances, I'm talking about baptism, I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. It seems to be jarring or almost surprising. And so what I want to do for us is I want to take this week and next, and I want us to, to block that out, and I want to make the case as to why we should treat them with such seriousness, with such intensity, with such severity, so that we might worship the Lord on His terms, so that we might worship the Lord in a way in which He is glorified and exalted in us, so that we might worship Him soberly and spirit-filled and in complete accordance with His scriptures. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And would you stand with me as we read God's word together. Romans chapter 6. And we'll read the first 11 verses together. In Romans 6 it says, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. What you need to understand is the context here. At the end of of Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul writes this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so when we open up verse 6, this is the verse that he has in mind. This is the the idea that Paul has in mind. What Paul had said is this. He said, you know, we come to Christ and we've got baggage. We come to Christ and we've got sin. We come to Christ and we've got issues. We come to Christ and we are filled with sin. We are totally fallen, totally depraved, helpless to do anything about our own state. But as helpless as we seem to be, as hopeless as it appears to be, as powerless as it seems to be, as big as our sin is, the grace of Christ is always just bigger. That whatever we bring to him, Whatever we bring to his cross, whatever we bring to his feet, regardless of how hideous it is in our eyes, regardless of how hideous it is in the eyes of God himself, the grace of Christ covers all of that with his righteousness, covers it all of that with his own blood that we might be forgiven. What a stunning picture of Christ, isn't it? That there's nothing you can bring to him big enough that will outpunt his grace. There is no sin that you can bring to the table that in some way will outrun the grace that he has provided. No, his grace is sufficient for all of your sin. But Paul seems to anticipate an issue with this. Paul seems to understand that this teaching about grace is dangerous. And so he says, so so immediately when we get into chapter 6, he poses a rhetorical question. He says, so if Because we are sinners and unable to help ourselves, we know that God had to come and he had to save us. And so Jesus comes and he covers us in his grace. And by covering such gruesome, hideous sinners in his grace, our sin actually serves to bring glory to him. Because it shows that our sin is powerless against his grace. So, does that mean we should continue in sin? Or that even it's okay for us to continue in sin? That Jesus might be shown gracious. That Jesus might be shown increasingly good and increasingly forgiving and increasingly kind and increasingly glorious. So should I continue in my sin so that I might see the extent of how how wide his grace can extend? In other words, can I justify my sin by saying it's okay, Jesus is so glorious he's going to forgive it anyway? That's how we word it in our culture. I've heard it repeatedly with my own ears spoken from the lips, boldly by the way, from people that say this. If God has forgiven all of my sins past, all of my sins present, all of my sins future, then why does it matter? God's going to forgive me anyway. 
So I can do what I want to do. I don't, have to, I don't have to abide in his word. I don't have to be devoted to the fellowship of believers. I don't have to live a life that is set apart and particularly godly and holy and completely altogether different than the culture. What difference does it make? God is going to save me anyway. What a terrifying reality it is that we can so abuse grace this way. What a terrifying reality it is that we can so mock the cross as to say that the very one who came to die for sin, to defeat sin, the very one that had to come and suffer and have his blood spilled because of the wickedness of sin and the wrath owed to that sin by the Father, that we could use him and his cross as justification to do the wickedness that we do? It's a terrifying thought. But whether you say it verbally and articulate it that way, or not. I'm guaranteeing, because I know it's true in my own heart and in my own life, that all of us do that. All of us have times and moments in our lives in which we willfully sin. We willfully do that which we know will bring displeasure and dishonor to God. And we willfully doing it knowing that we're going to be okay because Jesus is going to forgive us. You know, this is the issue that so many of the false religions have with Christianity and our understanding of grace. As, as a matter of fact, it's probably even the issue that's in view here at the Church of Rome with the, the Judaizers and the Orthodox Jews and the Pharisees as they would come and they would accuse and they would say, if your understanding of grace is right, then there is no motivation for godliness or righteousness. It's the same charge that the Muslims make against us, the same charge that the Mormons make against us. That if we have grace, why do we need to live? If grace is unmerited, if grace is unconditional, if grace is ever increasing, if grace is offered to us freely, then what motivation could there be for a person to live a godly life? And so Paul is not going to leave any ambiguity about where he stands. Paul is not going to leave this unclear for us or for his hearers that day. He exclaims immediately with an exclamation point, by no means. By no means. By no means can we ever justify our sinfulness. By no means should we ever feel good about our sinfulness. And by no means should we ever be okay with our sinfulness by looking to the cross and saying, well, I'm forgiven anyway. It doesn't matter. Let me explain. Imagine this morning that there is a son. And this son knows without a shadow of a doubt that his father will forgive him of anything that he does. That there is nothing that this son can do. There is no thing so bad. There is no place so far that this son can go that his father will see it as being unforgivable. And so his son with this knowledge goes and he, he steals from his father. And every time he's out in public, he shames his father and brings reproach upon his father. He speaks negatively against his father. He takes from his father everything that his father holds dear. He spits in the face of his father. And when you ask him why he does it, his answer would be, because I know my father will forgive me. Because I know that there's nothing that I can do that will, not, that will cause him to not forgive me, or to not show me mercy, or to not show me grace. Now, without question, I think every person in this room would say the same thing. That young man does not love his father. He does not love his father. 
Think about what it says about us. If we can use that same excuse to live however it is that we want to live, to indulge our sinful nature, to live out the appetites of our flesh, to only say, I know that God will forgive me. Brothers and sisters, you need to hear me say that if you're doing that, you are living in flagrant and egregious violation of the greatest command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It means, as John would tell us, that the love of God is not in you at all. That you are not a Christian, that you are not a believer, that you are far from God and still under his wrath. Because you have not been transformed. You have not had the Spirit of God come and take residence in your life. If you are living in continual and habitual sin, and that is your justification. I want you to hear me say, that's not right. And you are far from God. And you need to repent and throw yourselves on the cross and repent of your sin and repent of how casually you have mocked the cross for all of these years. Why is that? Paul tells us the purpose in verse, at the end of uh, verse 2. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now why is this? Why is it that we cannot live that way if we are believers in Christ? Why is it that we cannot live this way if we are following him and going after him and been, been saved by him and had the, the spirit regenerate us and take residence in our lives? Why is that? Paul says, do you not understand? Do you not get it? That when you came to Christ, you put the old you to death. Do you not get it? Do you not understand that, that to come to Christ is to leave yourself? To come to Christ is to leave the world. It is to abandon that. It is to put to death what is sinful in you. It is to put to death your sinful nature. It is to put to death your own ambitions and your own autonomy. It is to put to death your rulership over your own life. You see, I want you to hear me say that you can know all of the stuff about Jesus. You can know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You can even believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering the grave, conquering sin, and not be a Christian. Do you know that? I hope that's a sobering thought for you. I hope it's a soul-searching thought for you. But you can know all of those things about Christ. You can believe all of those things about Christ and be just as the demons are who know those things, believe those things, and tremble, yet are condemned. You see, salvation doesn't come merely because you accept that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Salvation doesn't come merely because you believe and have confidence in the resurrection. No, salvation comes into your life when you know that Jesus laid down his life for you, and in response, you laid down your life with him. Salvation comes when we realize that he died for our sins, and then we accept that death by laying down our lives and by putting ourselves to death in him. You see, what I'm talking about this morning, brothers and sisters, is I'm talking about a transfer of lordship in your life. So when he comes in and he floods you with grace, and this, this ever-increasing grace that does prove him glorious, this ever-increasing grace that does cover all of your sin, this ever-increasing grace in which you can never outrun and you can never outpunt, when all of this comes in, he comes and he, and he fills you with the Spirit and he regenerates you and gives you a new heart and a new nature and a new life. You see, it's at that point. It's at that point you can't be who you once were. 
It's at that point you begin to walk in newness of life, as he says. It's at that point that everything about you transforms. And what happened? What happened is you went to ruling over your life, and instead now you have surrendered to the rulership of Christ in your life. There's been this transfer of lordship. I was in control, but I've put me to death. I was doing what I wanted, but I've put me to death. I was going where I wanted to go, but I put me to death. I was spending my money how I wanted to spend it, but I put me to death. Now it's not about me anymore. The old me has died. The old me has been put to death. I've laid my life down because I know that Christ has laid down his life for me. And now I surrender. I surrender my life to him. I submit to his lordship in my life. Let me ask you, have you ever done that? I'm not asking you if you know the right answers. I'm not asking you if you've done A, B, and C. I'm not asking you if you've responded, if you've raised your hand, not raised your hand, prayed a sin. I'm not asking that. What I'm asking you this morning is have you surrendered to the lordship of Christ? Have you surrendered to his rulership in your life? Have you put to death the old you? Have you put to death all of those things that will not allow you to justify your sin with the cross? Have you done that? Search your soul. Search your soul. Because this is deeper than our culture. And this is deeper than I grew up in church. And this is deeper than my granddaddy was a preacher. This is the gospel that's at stake. This is eternity that's at stake. This is your standing before God that is at stake. Have you done that? Have you responded to Christ laying down his life for you by you laying down your life with him? Now, Paul seeks to drive home his point and he seeks to to strengthen it and to solidify it. And how does he do that? Paul does this in verses 3 and 4 by pointing us to baptism. Paul does this by pointing us to believers' baptism. And so he essentially says this. He says, do you not understand? Do you not understand what you've seen? Do you not understand the picture that has been demonstrated for you, perhaps week after week? By this point at the church in Rome, it's very likely that they had witnessed thousands and thousands of baptisms. The the gospel was spreading across the continents like like a wildfire. And as the apostles went and they preached in the power of the Spirit in in a tongue that only those people could understand. They were coming to the gospel. The Spirit was drawing them to the Father. And they were repenting and being baptized just as Peter had instructed them in Acts chapter 2. And so they had seen baptism after baptism after baptism. They themselves, if they were a part of the church at Rome, would have been baptized. And so Paul says, do you not get the picture? Are you missing what happens every time a sinner is baptized? Are you missing what's happening every time? To be baptized, church, is to be publicly buried with Christ. It is to publicly proclaim that you have put yourself to death and been buried into the grave with Christ. That the old you has been buried just as Christ has been buried. It is to publicly lay yourself on the cross with Jesus so that you can say with Paul, I have been crucified in Christ. Now he may live in me. Every baptism that you've ever seen, even your own baptism, is saying the same thing. It is saying to the church that a sinner has been put to death. It is saying to the church that an old person is now gone. 
That a person has now experienced this transfer of lordship and they have repented. And now they are coming after Christ. And now they are identifying Christ with Christ in his death. That he might now live out through them with the power of the Spirit. The early church understood this so much better than we do. Uh, Archaeologists say that, I've read this week, that archaeologists would go and they've excavated some of these churches all the way back to the first century from the time of the apostles. And what they found is in these very first Christian churches, when they discovered the baptistries, that the baptistries were actually built, most many of them, into the shape of a coffin or into the shape of a cross. So that the picture would be vivid. So that the picture would be unmistakable. That when the person is buried, when the person is put under the water, they're in essence buried into the coffin or they're in essence buried into the cross, that that person has been put to death. That someone new might come to life. That someone new might come to be. That they may not live according to their old flesh. They may not live according to the desires of me. But now they are living under the rulership of Christ. And according to his word and his desires for their life. It's just as verse 6 says it. Baptism says it just as verse 6 says it. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7 takes it even a step further. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Did you know that you're enslaved to sin? Before you come to Christ, you're enslaved. Ephesians says that in your trespasses you are dead. That you are are powers. What, What power does a slave have over their own condition? None. What power does a dead person have over their own condition? None. You in your sin are a slave. What do we mean by that? First of all, what we mean is that you have no power not to sin. That you were born as a sinner with a fallen nature and a bent towards sin, and you sin and you like it. And not only do you have no power uh, not to, yet not only do you not have power not to sin, but you have no power to defeat the penalty of sin. That is, that you will eternally reap the consequences of your sin. That you will eternally experience the wrath of the justice of God that must be executed against all sin. That you will sin and you will sin and you will sin because you must sin, because you have to sin, because you do sin, because your nature demands it from you. You you know nothing different. And so you do what you want to do and you do what you want to do and you do what you want to do and guess what you want to do? Sin. You're enslaved. You're enslaved. You're in bondage. The Gospels use this language over and over and over. You are dead. You are enslaved. But what has Christ come to do? Christ has come to set us free. Christ has come to set us free. Christ has come with his abounding grace that he might cover us in his righteousness and set us free to obedience in Christ. Christ has come to to set us free from our sinfulness and to set us free from our penalty of sin that we might enjoy the Father forever. Christ has come and he has set us free indeed. And what does baptism do? Baptism is the public declaration of freedom of the sinner from sin. Baptism is the public declaration of freedom, that I am no longer enslaved by Christ, that I have been liberated in the gospel, that I have been set free in the cross, and now Christ, because he has given me a new nature and made me a new man, has empowered me to obey the Father and to honor the Father and to bring glory to the Lord. 
It is a declaration of independence from sin, and at the same time, a declaration of dependence on the Lord. Baptism is to make all of this public. Now, I want you to notice a few small details that if we're not careful, we'll overlook. In verse 3, I love the way Paul says this. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, all of us who have been baptized, what is the assumption of Paul here? The assumption of Paul is that they've all been baptized, right? And as you read throughout the epistles, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian. Nothing. Every assumption made by every New Testament writer, Paul writes the most, uh, the most frequently about this, but every assumption that they make is that a Christian is always baptized. That they have lived according to the preaching of Peter when he says, repent and be baptized. Those things happen almost at once. You repent and you are baptized. Now turn with me to Matthew 28. Why is this? Why is there this assumption of baptism of Christians? Why is it that we would even maintain that you must be baptized to be a member of Iron City Baptist Church? And you must. You must be baptized to be a member of Iron City Baptist Church. Why is that? Matthew 28 is the answer. Verse 19. This is Jesus giving us the Great Commission. What does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's what's happened, I'm afraid. In the Baptist church, we have rightly begun been able to understand that baptism is not sacramental. And here's what I mean by that. We rightly understand that the water that we have in our baptistry is not filled with grace. That the water does not impart grace to us. That we don't go into the water without grace and then when we come out of the water we have grace. That's not what happens. God does not transfer grace through water. That doesn't happen that way. And so what we've rightly said is that baptism is instead a symbol. It's a symbol that, that shows us identifying with Christ in his death and being raised to walk in newness of life, right? We, we have shown it as a symbol, like a wedding ring. You've heard that, that illustration used over and over and over again. It doesn't make me married, but it marks me as being married, right? But here's what I'm afraid we've done. We've, we've come to believe that it's just a symbol. That it's just a symbol. We, we've come to believe, and I think particularly in our church family and, and in churches like us, we have begun to, to rebel against all types of, of symbolism. We've begun to rebel against all types of tradition and all that kind of stuff. And so we say, well, if it's symbolism, it must be optional. And so we have lessened it in our eyes. And we have lowered it in our eyes. And we have done so at the, at the dismay and at the disheartening of Christ. <laughs> Why? It's not just a symbol, it's a command. It's not just a symbol, it's a command. Why did Paul assume that all Christians would be, uh, would be baptized? Because Paul assumed anyone who had repented of their sin to follow after Christ would want to obey him. Would want to obey him. Would want to follow after him. Would want to live according to his word. Because remember, what is salvation? Salvation is that transfer of lordship, right? Salvation is, is acknowledging that, that the saving work of Christ on the cross, the resurrection, and then responding by laying down our, our own lives. It's, it's responding by saying, I am no longer ruling over my life. I am submitting to the rulership of Christ in my life. You, here's what baptism is. Baptism, your willingness to be baptized, 
demonstrates your willingness to live under the lordship of Christ. It's the first step, right? It's an obedience issue. This isn't about symbolism. This isn't about options. This isn't about maybe. This isn't about when I, when I get around to it. This isn't about when I get comfortable with it. That's not what this is about at all. Baptism is about, am I willing to obey the Lord? Am I willing to live surrendered to Christ? And your willingness to be baptized demonstrates to your church family, demonstrates publicly that I will live under the Lordship of Christ, that I will obey this command from Him. Now let me ask you, do you really believe that you're going to honor Him with your marriage if you're not willing to honor Him in baptism? Do you believe that you're really going to honor him with your daily living and Christian living and being set apart and go against the current and live boldly and courageously for the gospel if you're not willing to obey him on baptism? Do you believe that you're really going to invest the gospel into your children relentlessly, persevering and through all of the, dis, uh, the difficulties of parenting if you're not willing to, to do the simple thing of baptism, to, to follow and to identify with Christ that way? Have you obeyed Christ? Have you obeyed Christ? Have you demonstrated your willingness to live under his lordship by obeying him, obeying the command that he has given us to be baptized? And why is it a mandate to be a member of our church? Who has he put responsible for this? Who has he made responsible for this? He's made his disciples responsible for this, right? He said, go make disciples and you baptize them. So it is the church's responsibility. It is my responsibility. It is our collective responsibility to guard our body from this type of disobedience. And so you have to be baptized because we are responsible for you to be baptized. And so I'm calling you. Have you obeyed the Lord? Go back with me to Romans chapter 6. The next thing that I want you to pay attention to is when it says in verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism. Now, among Christians over the last several centuries, there has been a lot of debate about the mode of baptism, about about what baptism should should be like. Should it be dunking? Should it be sprinkling? Should it be pouring? And I'm here to say that as much debate as there has been in the church, there just doesn't seem to be that kind of debate in the New Testament. There just doesn't seem to be that kind of debate in the New Testament on the mode of baptism. Now, the word baptism in your Bible is an untranslated word. Did you know that? It's an untranslated word. What I mean by that is is that your Bibles, now this is going to hurt our American arrogance, God did not give the Bible in English. All right? Y'all know that? He didn't give it to us in English. He he, he didn't even give it to us in KJV style. Like, it didn't come down that way. So every word in your Bible is a translated word. Now, there are a few exceptions, like selah and and baptism. But but the words that we have are translated in the Old Testament from Hebrew and in the New Testament from Greek to us in our language that we might understand. And, And translators have been gifted by God to do great work so that we might have this. But the word baptism is not a translated word. If you were to ask me what the Greek word for baptism is, it is baptism. It is baptizo. Now, why is that? By the time it got around to the, uh, to the English translations of the Bible, churches had become very ingrained in their traditions, particularly the Catholic and the Anglican churches. And so when, the, when, the, when King James, when he decreed the, all of the translators to come and to translate his Bible for him, or to translate the Bible, 
for the Anglican church, they decided not to translate baptism to its real meaning. What does the word baptism, how does it translate? To immerse. To immerse. Now that's not real ambiguous, all right? To immerse, to dunk, to, to submerge. But they didn't, why? Because they would have been calling into reproach all of the churches. The, the Anglican church and the Catholic church. And they would have been showing them that their baptisms were, were unfaithful because they were sprinkling and pouring primarily. And so they decided to leave it with the word baptism so that it wouldn't be as controversial. But if we were to go back to Paul and we were to ask Paul, Paul, what is the meaning of the word baptism? Paul would have looked at us like we were crazy because it was assumed that you knew what the word baptism was. You know what a pie is? You know what pizza is? You know what baptism is? Like it, it, would, have been, it would have been not a, an issue at all. It meant to immerse, to submerge. Now why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because of what Paul says in verse 4. To be immersed is to identify with Christ in his burial. You, you can't do that by sprinkling. You can't do that by, by pouring. You, you are immersed, and when you are immersed, that is the picture of, of Christ being immersed into the ground, being submerged under the ground with, a, with the behind the tomb, with the, the rock rolled behind it. It is the same picture. And so we are identifying with Christ in his death. We are being immersed. We are being submerged so we might identify with him in his burial. And so we ask not only for baptism to be a member here, but baptism by, submit, by submersion, by immersion. Why? Because you have to identify publicly with Christ. Publicly with Christ in his burial. So that you might demonstrate this gospel picture with obedience. The next phrase that I want you to pay attention to is the several phrases. We see it over and over in three, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might be. Over and over, the emphasis here is on what? We were baptized into Christ. We were baptized into his death. We were, we were baptized with Christ. We were going with him. We were with him, into him. The picture here is our union with Christ. That is the picture. What Paul has been talking about over all of Romans so far has been how can we be united with Christ and now that we are united with Christ, how can we live? So it's the, the picture of us being united with Christ. Now here's what this means. This means that this can't be private. This can't be private. That's what baptism is. Baptism is you publicly showing and demonstrating your union with Christ. Now I get that there's a... Uh, uh, that the fear of crowds is a real thing. I, I get it. I get it. People say that, uh, that there are more people afraid of speaking in front of crowds and in people than there are people willing to die. Now, I would ask them, would you like me to kill you or would you like to come and speak in front of the crowd? And I, I bet you they'd change their mind. But nonetheless, it's a real thing. But what, is it, what have we said in, in the gospel? In the gospel, have we not committed ourselves to a life of self-denial? In the gospel, have we not committed ourselves to live in a way that is contrary to our flesh, in a way that is contrary to our old nature, in a way that is contrary to what comes comfortable for us? In Christ, have we not been given a, sp a spirit of power, and of love, and of self-discipline, not of fear, as Paul says? Have we not been given that spirit? Have we not committed our lives that even if it costs us our lives, even if we die, that we will follow Christ obediently? 
then we should think of the words that, Paul, that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, if, if you will deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. That if you are unwilling to be marked with me publicly, I will be unwilling to be marked with you before the Father. Are you prepared for that moment? I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. But could this be the very first moment of self-denial in your life as you practically live out your faith? That you would obey Christ, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, whether it's natural or unnatural, that you would obey Christ because he has simply commanded you to do it. But this morning, I want you to know, we don't just put ourselves to death for the sake of putting ourselves to death. We don't just identify with Jesus in his death for the sake of identifying with Jesus in his death. No. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Brothers and sisters, this morning, have you ever wondered why we don't hold him under in baptism? Now, there's been a few I've wanted to. Perhaps even a few of you I've wanted to hold under until you bubbled. But no, we, we put you under and we immediately bring you back out of the water. Why? Christ went into the grave and he immediately came back out, right? Christ went in and he came back triumphant over death, triumphant over sin, victoriously, wearing the crown, reigning with all dominion over eternity. And when we go in, we don't stay in. We identify with Jesus on the cross that we may then identify with Jesus in the resurrection. We are buried with him that we might come out of the water. That we might be marked with him triumphantly. That we might be marked with him victoriously. You see, Christians should never think of death without also thinking of resurrection. Did you hear me? Christians should never think of death without at the same time thinking of resurrection. We hold death and resurrection in the same hand at the same time because death cannot hold us down. Death should not leave us despairing because by God's grace and by the power of the cross and by the goodness of the resurrection, we will rise again in Christ Jesus. And this is demonstrated in baptism. We go down with him so that we are marking the old us is dead. We are no longer in charge of our lives. Our, our lives are no longer under our rulership. We are under Christ. But because of that, we will be raised triumphantly with him forever. For what reason? To walk in newness of life. To walk in newness of life. To live a new life. To live a life that we were incapable of living before. This is why salvation that doesn't lead to transformation is a sham. It's not real. Christ has saved us to make us someone new. Christ has saved us and he has made us someone with a new nature and a new life and a new heart. And he has risen us. He has raised us from the grave. Now that we might live with gospel power. That we might live lives with, with gospel-centeredness and against the culture that, that brings him glory and honor in everything that we do. That's why every time we baptize someone here, we say buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life with him. Because Jesus has saved you not just from your sins, but he has saved you for your life. That you might live a life that brings him glory and honor. That you might live a life that is worthy of his name. That you might live a life that is worthy and able to actually accomplish something 
worth accomplishing. I think what's important when we think of newness of life, what does that tell us? It must be a true baptism, right? Whenever I'm talking about baptism, I want you to understand this morning that I'm talking about true baptism. Newness of life. Who is able to live a new life? Christians, right? Only Christians. Only Christians are able to live a new life because we've been regenerated by the Spirit. We've been filled with the Spirit. We've been empowered by the Spirit. We've been clothed in the, in the gospel power. Only Christians can live a new life. So who should be baptized? Only Christians. Only Christians. We, that's, that's why we don't baptize infants. That's why we don't baptize uh, an, un, an unbeliever just so they can be a church member. We don't do that. Because that's not baptism. That's just getting wet. That's just getting dunked. That's just getting whatever. No, it must be a true baptism. A baptism that is once and for all. Just as Christ's death was once and for all, our baptism is once and for all. That once we turn from our sins, once we have committed our lives to Christ, once we have begun to walk in newness of life with him, then we must obey him. Then we must be baptized. Then we must be identified publicly with him. So I want you to evaluate your baptism. Some of you think you've been baptism and you haven't been baptized. Because when you were baptized before, you weren't a true believer. You weren't a true follower of Christ. You weren't walking in newness of life with him. You weren't repentant of your sin in the past. But since then, since then, the Lord has done a miraculous saving work in your life. Since then, you have repented of your sins. Since then, not perfectly, you have tried by the power of the Spirit to live a new life, to walk in newness of life with Him. This morning, I'm calling you to come and to obey the Lord, to mark yourselves publicly, to publicly declare your freedom from sin and to invite the accountability of your church family in this new walk. I'm asking you to be baptized. I'm asking you to obey the Lord. I'm asking you to demonstrate that he is Lord over your life. So this morning, where are you in baptism? Where are you in baptism? Are you living in obedience to Christ? Are you living in obedience to the Great Commission? Some of you have watched baptism after baptism after baptism. And though you have yourself been baptized, you have allowed yourself just to glaze over it with every baptism. And I'm not giving it the seriousness and the severity and the, the moment of worship that it really is. I pray this morning that you would repent. And then I would ask you, who has been baptized because of you? Who has been baptized because of you? The Great Commission. Every one of his disciples has what responsibility? Make disciples and baptize them. Make disciples and baptize them. Who recently? Who this year? Who last year? Repent. Pray that the Lord would give you one name to share the gospel with this week. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray... That in every way that you command us to do so, we would worship you on your terms and not on our terms. That we would worship you in your way and not in our own imagined way. God, it is not our goal to come up with creative ways to worship you, but to worship you in the exact way that you have instructed us to worship you. And one of those is baptism. Forgive us, Lord, for how often, for how long we have been so casual and complacent about baptism. Forgive us for how often we have seen baptism as an extension of the service rather than as an opportunity of worship. Forgive us, God, that we are so complacent in our walks with you. 
Father, I pray for those that have lived lives of disobedience, unwilling to be baptized, or feeling no urgency to be baptized. That this morning, by the power of the Spirit, you would convict them, and you would draw them, and that you would bring them as a step in newness of life. I pray for those that have never enjoyed the gospel, that have never died to themselves, that this morning you would call them not to believe, but to surrender. This morning, do a transformative work here in our church family. We ask these things in Christ's name, and in His name alone.